You might not know this, but there are many kinds of visual scopes which are used by many different people and for many different purposes. For example, scientists use microscopes to observe objects that are too small for them to view with the human eye, while astronomers use telescopes in order to examine the incredible universe that the Lord has created. Hunters use rifle scopes in order to magnify the target they're aiming at. And surgeons use endoscopes because endoscopes help them to know when our life will end. So, uh, so it's an endoscope, you see. But seriously, you know, with all these scopes in mind, you might like to know that there is a spiritual scope which helps us to see that our Savior was sent to save sinners of every stripe. And it's here in our time today that we're going to spend our time considering this scope of our Savior's salvation. As we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the scope of our Savior's salvation includes the salvation of unrighteous rulers. Also, the scope of our Savior's salvation includes the salvation of seditious soldiers. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the scope of our Savior's salvation includes the salvation of callous criminals. And with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 23, because here we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually being crucified for our sins so that sinners might be saved. And as you make your way to the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel account, well, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you, it was in our study last week when we learned about the prophetic warning that the Lord Jesus presented to the women who were weeping there as they watched our Savior being led up to Calvary. And and while it's true that these days of distress that Jesus was talking about will end up growing worse and worse the closer we get to the rapture of the church, well, it's also true that the Lord actually has a plan to use these distressful days in order to save sinners of every stripe. With this as the focus, we're going to spend our time today considering the scope of salvation that the Lord is using as he searches for sinners who want to be saved. And with this as our focus, look with me here at Luke chapter 23. We'll begin reading there at verse 32. Here Luke tells us that there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Now, here in these verses, we find Luke, he's reminding his readers about the two criminals who were crucified at the same time as Jesus Christ. And while we aren't really provided with the reason for why these men had been condemned to the cross, there are many who believe that these men had taken part in the insurrection that had been led by Barabbas, you know, the criminal who was set free so that Jesus might be crucified. 
But regardless of the reason for why these two men were being crucified on either side of Jesus Christ, what we can say for sure is that the Lord Jesus was being crucified between these two criminals, just as the prophet Isaiah foretold when in his book he tells us that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. That's a prophecy found in the book of Isaiah, that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors, and we see how this is being fulfilled as he's crucified between these criminals. Now, when we get to our third point, we're going to consider more about these criminals and we're going to consider the scope of salvation and and how it includes callous criminals, just like the transgressors who were crucified on either side of our Savior. But for now, I just want to focus our attention on the fact that the scope of our Savior's salvation, it includes sinners of every stripe. And this, of course, then includes the unrighteous rulers, even those who were calling for his crucifixion. In order to more fully grasp the extent to which our Savior came to save sinners, well, I want to take some time to consider the prayer that he prayed as he's being crucified there on Calvary. With this as the focus, if you would, let's turn our attention now back to Luke chapter 23. I want to focus your attention once again at verse 34. Here Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Incredible. Here we find Jesus Christ being crucified, and as he's being nailed to that cross, he's praying, Father, forgive them. Jesus was praying for all the people who were present there at Calvary, and and while the scope of this prayer, it included the multitudes who had come to witness the crucifixion of Christ Jesus... Well, the scope of this prayer also included the religious rulers who had uh, falsely accused him of blasphemy and then called for his crucifixion. He's praying, Father, forgive them. Now, it's important to realize that Jesus' intercession for sinners uh, doesn't automatically force God's forgiveness onto people. People have to be receptive to the forgiveness as well. But he's still interceding for these people, and he's interceding on behalf of these, uh, these uh, unrighteous rulers who had called for his crucifixion. And after hearing this prayer, that's when the unrighteous rulers responded, but not with faith. Not with a receptive heart. No, instead, they responded by mocking our Messiah. As a matter of fact, look with me again there, beginning at verse 35. Here again, Luke tells us that the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Here in this verse, we find these religious rulers of Israel sneering, and scoffing at the sincere prayer of our Savior. Not only that, but they also mocked our Messiah, and they did this by insisting that the only way that he could really prove to be the Savior was by first saving himself from the cross. Now think about that for a moment. They're insisting that the only way that Jesus could prove to them that he is the Savior is by saving himself from the cross. What they were failing to understand is that our Savior wasn't sent to save himself. Jesus doesn't need to be saved. Jesus didn't come to save himself. Therefore, this is uh, not a good test. Jesus didn't come to save himself from the cross. No, instead, Christ Jesus allowed himself to be crucified so that sinners of every stripe might be saved. 
I like the way that Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 1. It's verse 20 where he informs us that God reconciled everything to himself through Jesus. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Incredible. Our Savior came and allowed himself to be crucified on the cross by his own creation so that every sinner might be saved through the reconciliation that we receive by faith in our Redeemer Jesus. In order to further grasp this scope of salvation, we must not fail to notice that the Father has made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ that sinners can be reconciled to God the Father. Therefore, the scope of salvation, it includes the opportunity for every sinner to be saved. And yes, this includes the unrighteous rulers who actually called for his crucifixion. In eternity past, as the, the, uh, the triune God that we worship looked down the corridor of time and, and imagined how people might be saved from their sins, you know, the, the scope of our Savior's salvation included every, every single person, that the possibility of salvation would be extended to every single sinner. And listen, this not only includes the unrighteous rulers who called for the crucifixion of Christ there in the first century. But the scope of our Savior's salvation also includes the unrighteous rulers who are currently occupying positions of power and authority here in the 21st century. To prove my point, I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presented in his first letter to Pastor Timothy. So hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. See, it's here in the second chapter of 1 Timothy. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging Christians to pray for those in positions of power. And, and one reason why is so that the leaders who are lost might be saved. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who, notice, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires everyone to be saved by coming to the knowledge of the truth. And with that being the case, Paul is encouraging Christians to pray for every person, to pray for those who hold positions of power and authority. And yes, this includes the leaders uh, of any unrighteous religious system that's currently leading people astray. And this also includes the unrighteous rulers who are uh, enforcing political policies that are in conflict with the word of God. Paul is calling us to pray for them. He's, he's calling us to pray for everyone occupying an office of authority and especially for those who have yet to embrace the free gift of grace by which sinners can be saved. We should be praying for our leaders so that they might wake up and, and realize that our Savior wants to save them as well. With that, I can't help but to think of 
the encouragement that Peter presented in Second Peter chapter 3. It's verse 9 where he declares, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is long-suffering with sinners. And the reason why is because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And as we consider the way that he desires all men to repent and be saved, according to the knowledge of the truth, we can rejoice in knowing that our Savior's scope of salvation includes sinners of every stripe. And yes, even the unbelieving leaders who are even currently making a mockery of our Messiah. And as you think of the leaders that come to your mind, you might be thinking, they're irredeemable. Can't be saved. And yet, it's our Savior's desire to save them. And so we've been called to pray for their salvation, even the salvation of every unrighteous ruler. And while it's true that the scope of our Savior's salvation includes the salvation of unrighteous rulers, it's also true that the scope of salvation includes the salvation of seditious soldiers. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 23. Here we find some Roman soldiers mocking our Messiah. If you would look with me there at Luke 23, we'll pick up our study at verse 36. Here we learn that the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now here in these verses, we learn about the sign that the soldiers attached to the cross of Christ. This sign would have been over his head so that as, you know, he hung there on the cross, people could see what he had been accused of. And in this case, the sign read, this is the king of the Jews. This sign included this inscription written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew so that everyone could know what he was being accused of. And, and according to the Apostle John, you know, in the, in the uh, Gospel account of, of John, uh, we learn that the chief priests actually took issue with this, sta this statement. The, the chief priests of the Jews came to Pilate, and they asked Pilate to change the sign. You see, the chief priests, they wanted the sign to read in this way. He said, I am the king of the Jews. They, they didn't want it to be stated that this is the king of the Jews, but rather that, well, he just said it. He claimed to be. That's why he's being crucified. In response, Pilate answered, nuh -uh. No way. He says, I have written what I have written, and it remained. And so we see that the sign that the soldiers attached to the cross identified Jesus as the king of the Jews. And as we consider Pilate's decision to place that statement on that sign, I can't help but to remember the conversation that he had with Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 18, beginning at verse 36, where Pilate asks Jesus if he was a king. And we find the response there in verse 36 where Jesus declares, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Simply put, the Lord Jesus is the king. And he's the king who was sent to prepare this planet for the kingdom which has yet to come. And according to the Lord Jesus, this was the cause for why he was born. It's for this cause that he was born. And with this in mind, I can't help but to remember the way in which the wise men from the east came in search of the one who they claimed would be born king of the Jews. They were searching for the one who was born king of the Jews. And when they arrived, they found the baby Jesus fulfilling that prophecy. That's right. The baby Jesus was born king of the Jews. He didn't just become king of the Jews. He was born king of the Jews. Now, why were they searching for the one born king of the Jews? Well, the chances are the wise men had studied the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament about this coming king. We find all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, prophecies about this coming king. And and we also find uh, later on a man named Nathaniel in John chapter 1 referring to Jesus as the son of God and the king of Israel. In Luke chapter 19, we find the Israelites worshiping the Lord Jesus as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, we find Paul referring to the Lord as the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then in Revelation chapter 17, the apostle John tells us that Jesus is the Lord of lords and King of kings. With all this in mind, Pilate was correct. Pilate was correct when he called Jesus the King of the Jews. Pilate was correct when he wrote on that sign, this is the king of the Jews. And not just the king of the Jews, but Jesus is the king of kings. Whatever king has ever existed on this planet, whatever person has ever held any position of authority, Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we consider how this sign identified our Savior properly as the king of the Jews, well, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the soldiers saw this sign and it gave them reason to mock our Messiah. They did this by declaring, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They saw the sign, they saw what was written, and they used it to mock our Messiah. If you really are a king, let's see your power. Save yourself. They challenged Jesus to prove that he is a king by saving himself from certain death. And just like the Jews, well, these soldiers criticized the king of kings and they scoffed at our savior who was actually offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for their sins. In this way, we can see that these military men, they were actually just seditious soldiers. And the reason why I say they were seditious soldiers is because, remember, Jesus is the king of kings. In other words, Jesus is the king who has sovereign authority over every other world leader, whether they recognize it or not. 
And while it's true that these soldiers were only following the orders of Pilate, who himself was under the authority of Emperor Tiberius, well, it's also true that Emperor Tiberius was failing to submit himself to the true king, the king of kings. And with that being the case, these soldiers there in Rome, they were actually rebelling against the ultimate authority, Jesus Christ, the king of kings. Thankfully for them, our Savior's scope of salvation, it includes sinners of every stripe, including seditious soldiers like them. To prove my point, I want to spend some time considering the conversion of a few soldiers who were probably there at the cross. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. And as you make your way to the 27th chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Israelites were uh, there in the first century were actually living under Roman occupation. Rome had occupied much of the world, including Israel. And, and it's for this reason that the Roman soldiers who were there at the cross, they probably believed that their gods were the ones that had given them power to conquer the entire world. And therefore, they probably believed that their gods were more powerful than, than the God of Israel. That is until they came to realize that Jesus truly is the Son of God. With that, I want to consider the Apostles' account found here in Matthew chapter 27. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 50. Here we learn that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly saying truly this was the son of God now here in these verses we find this centurion and his soldiers these uh, these Roman uh, military men who had been called to stand guard uh, whether we're talking about there at the cross of Christ or there at the tomb uh, they, they were watching uh, you know over the body and making sure that no one was going to steal the body and after watching all the incredible events that occurred from the time of the crucifixion of, of Christ until his resurrection well these soldiers came to realize this truly was the son of God And it's possible that these were the same soldiers, uh, for, you know, maybe the soldiers who were there at the cross were, were then used at the tomb, and, and, and it's possible that they ended up receiving the forgiveness of sins as they came to the realization that this was the Son of God. Now think about that for a moment. More than likely, the same Roman soldiers who, who crucified Jesus Christ and made sure that he died on the cross were probably saved there at the time of the resurrection as they came to realize that Christ Jesus is the King of Kings. And while we can't say for sure, I, just, I also can't help but to wonder how these soldiers may have been connected with another centurion named Cornelius. Was Cornelius there at the cross? We can't say for certain. But what we do know is that a centurion named Cornelius became the very first Gentile in the Christian church. To prove my point, let's consider Luke's account of the moment when the Holy Spirit fell upon the house of Cornelius. And so continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke. And let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 10. As you make your way to the 10th chapter of Acts, I should take a moment to, to point out here that Cornelius 
uh, was a centurion, which is to say that he was in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. And, and not only was he a man of position within the Roman military, but he was also a just man who had great respect for the true and living God. And not only that, <clears throat> but he also had a good reputation uh, uh, with all the Jews there in the nation. And according to Luke here, Cornelius was divinely instructed by a holy angel to call for the apostle Peter to come to his house so that he could hear the gospel of grace. And it's here in Acts chapter 10. You can read it, the whole chapter for homework. But Peter's waxing eloquent. He's preaching the gospel of Christ. He's letting them know, you know, about the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's here in Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 44, where Luke writes, while Peter was still speaking these words... The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized? Who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Here in these verses, we learn about this moment when the Holy Spirit fell upon the house of Cornelius. They were gathered around Peter, and Peter was preaching the gospel of, uh, of grace. And everyone in this house who believed the word and embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden started speaking in tongues, showing that the Holy Spirit had sealed them into the body of Christ. And it was at that moment when the Jewish believers finally realized, oh, Gentiles are going to be a part of the church, huh? The circumcised Jewish believers finally began to realize that the scope of our Savior's salvation isn't just for the circumcised Jew, but also for the uncircumcised Gentile. And listen, the scope of salvation not only includes general Gentiles who are uncircumcised, but also the soldiers who were even at that point in time serving as enemies of Israel. Yeah, the scope of salvation included those Roman soldiers. To further explain my point, I want to consider something that the Lord Jesus said during his Sermon on the Mount. And with this as the focus, continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke. And let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As you make your way to the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that the scope of salvation not only included the, the soldiers who were serving in the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, but the scope of salvation also included the soldiers who were from Rome, the Roman occupiers. What this means is that the scope of our Savior's salvation includes soldiers who made themselves the enemies of God's people. And to further prove my point, let's consider this statement that Jesus makes here in the Sermon on the Mount. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5. I want to focus your attention there at verse 43. Here Jesus declares, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus helping his audience to understand that those who have become the adopted children of God should then learn how to love our enemies with the gracious love of the Lord. 
Because when it comes to God's grace, there is something that we call common grace. And common grace is just God's goodness upon everyone on this planet. You know, God doesn't just allow believers to eat. Unbelievers get to eat too, right? Uh, You know, the sun doesn't just shine uh, upon believers and over the house of every unbeliever is just a dark cloud all the time, right? No. Unbelievers get to enjoy the sun as well. Unbelievers get to enjoy the rain as well and the crops that grow from the rain. And there's a common grace that God has extended to everyone on the planet. Furthermore, the Lord also wants to save those who have made themselves the enemies of God. The gracious gift of forgiveness has been extended to every single person. And yeah, even those who have made themselves the enemies of God. This was precisely the point that Jesus made in John chapter 3 when he declared, God so loved the world, not just some people in the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christian, listen, the scope of salvation, it not only includes those we consider to be our military allies, but the scope of salvation also includes, includes those that we would consider to be our military enemies. What this means is that Jesus not only came to save the, the, the beautiful American soldiers that we love so much, but, but he also came to save the soldiers who are serving in, in a, 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 you know, overseas somewhere in, in a group that we would, might consider to be our enemies. You know, the soldiers serving under Biden right now, uh, you know, we think, oh yeah, the Lord wants to save them, but what about the soldiers serving under Putin? Does God want to save them too? Listen, Jesus not only came to save the soldiers in the IDF, but he also came to save the soldiers serving Iran. Do you believe that? With that being the case, we should learn to love our enemies. And we should pray for those who are lost. Because the scope of salvation includes sinners of every stripe. And yeah, even seditious soldiers who have made themselves the enemies of God. Let's pray for them that they might embrace the gracious gift of salvation, which is, which is received by faith in the cross of Christ. Now this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, the scope of salvation not only includes the unrighteous rulers who are you know, leading uh, you know, people in, in a way that's in conflict with the word of, uh, word of God, and, and he not only wants to save seditious soldiers who have made themselves the enemies of God, but listen, the scope of salvation also includes callous criminals. And uh, to, to prove my point, Let's make our way back to Luke chapter 23. Here we learn more about the criminals who were first introduced early on in the text that's before us today. I want to pick up our study of Luke 23, beginning at verse 39. Here Luke writes, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now here in these verses, we find Luke, he's refocusing our attention back to the criminals who have been crucified uh, on either side of Christ Jesus. 
And just like the Jewish rulers and just like the Roman soldiers, one of these criminals began to blaspheme the Lord Jesus. And he did this by challenging Jesus to prove his supernatural power by saving himself and them from the certain death of the cross. And from this, we can see how all three of these groups, they were actually failing to understand that the Lord Jesus didn't come to save himself. Jesus didn't come to save himself. He doesn't need to be saved. No, instead he came to save sinners of every stripe. And that was great news, especially for the one who ended up trusting in Jesus right there on the cross. Notice with me again there at verse 40 here, we learn that the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, he's saying, hey, we're receiving justice here. We deserve to be here on the cross. And he says, we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This criminal uh, had come to the conclusion that Christ Jesus was completely innocent. And while it's possible that he had been there at the sentencing of Jesus Christ when Pilate announced the innocence of our Lord. Remember Pilate, he he announced that Jesus was innocent uh, of any crime deserving of death. And so it was possibly at that point in time when that criminal realized that Jesus was sinless, that he wasn't a criminal at all. It's also possible that he was just able to recognize the the sinless purity of our Savior. Because, you know, you can kind of see someone, you know, when when they're living a pure life, you know, it's obvious. And you can also kind of spot the criminals too, can't you? You know, there's probably people that you know that that when you first met him, it was just kind of like, this guy, this this guy's a criminal. You probably thought that about me when you first came to this church. This, This guy's a criminal, I'm pretty sure. But then you can see those people who are living a pure life. And, and I can't help but to think of one show that I watch where they take, you know, they, they take people and put them undercover into prison systems to kind of investigate what, what's happening in our prisons. And, and I remember watching one, uh, one guy, he was a, he was a police officer. And, and you, can, you, you can just see, this, this guy's a cop. It's like looking at Franco, you know, you know he's a cop, right? You see the hair, you, know, so you see how he walks, and yeah, this guy's a cop, right? Well, they put this, this cop uh, undercover in, the prisons, in, in this prison, and, and everybody could just, they, they, they spotted them, you know. They just, they knew for, for you know, th- this guy's a snitch. You know, they, they knew it. He just looked too clean cut. And that's possibly what's happening here. The criminal probably looks at Jesus and just thinks, this guy's no criminal. He was able to recognize the purity Of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter describes this when he tells us that Christ Jesus was like a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so it's my guess that the criminal was able to see the sinless purity of our Savior. And to further prove my point, let's take another look at the request that he presents here in Luke 23, uh, verse 42. Here he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. As we take a closer look at this request, we must not fail to notice that, you know, he, he first refers to Jesus as Lord. He asks his buddy, hey, don't, don't you fear God? And then turns around and calls Jesus Lord. In other words, this criminal was recognizing the supreme authority of our Savior Jesus. And not only that, but he also asks the Lord, hey, would you remember me when you return to your kingdom? Think about that statement for a second. You know, he... He's acknowledging Jesus as Lord and that he is king of a kingdom that he's about to go to. And he's asking the Lord, hey, when you get into your kingdom, 
remember me. In other words, it's almost like he's asking for, for permission to join him. Hey, remember me. Please grant me entrance into your kingdom as well. And I have no doubt that he rejoiced to hear our Savior's response. Notice with me again there in verse 43 where Jesus says to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. How incredible is that? Now at this point in time, we recognize that paradise is there in heaven. But in the context of this statement, it's important to understand that paradise at this point in time was actually a reference to Abraham's bosom. And just to be clear, Abraham's bosom was the section in Sheol where the Old Testament saints went to be comforted as they waited for the complete salvation of our Savior, which was then completed there on the cross. It's important to remember that Jesus must be the firstborn from the dead. Or in other words, Jesus must be the first one to rise up from the grave. That being the case, it was necessary for all of the Old Testament believers who died before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had, a, they had to go to some place. And so the place that God set aside for them is called Abraham's bosom, which was there in Sheol. With this in mind, I, I want to draw your attention to something that Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. It's verses 8 and 9, where Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus ascended on high. He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now from this, we can see that the Lord Jesus at one point descended into the lower parts of the earth, and this was believed to be the location of Sheol, it might well be. But Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, and what did he do there? Well, it's in 1 Peter chapter 4, it's verse 6, where we learn that the gospel was preached to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So at some point in time, Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. I'm believing that this happened there uh, after he died there on the cross. He descends into Sheol, and it's there where he preaches the fullness of the gospel to those who are dead, and specifically to those who died in faith. Remember, there are the Old Testament saints who uh, received the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the Messiah, they believed in those prophecies. They were expecting the arrival of the Messiah, but died before he came. And so it seems to me that Jesus entered Abraham's bosom after his death on the cross, and it was there where he presents the fullness of the gospel to the Old Testament saints who were waiting for the Messiah. And, and if I'm correct about this, then when Jesus informs the criminal here on the cross that he would join him in paradise, well, we know that Jesus didn't go to heaven at this point in time. Because he doesn't go to heaven until the day of the resurrection. No, instead he went to Sheol. He went to Abraham's bosom. He preached to the believers, presenting them with the fullness of the gospel that they were missing out on at, you know, at the time of their death. And he's simultaneously informing this criminal on the cross that he's effectively the last Old Testament saint. He informs him that he's about to enter Abraham's bosom where he would be surrounded by the rest of the Old Testament saints who are listed in the hall of faith, which you find in Hebrews chapter 11. You can read it for homework if you like. 
But what this also means then is that the criminal on the cross who placed his faith in Christ Jesus would join all of the rest of the Old Testament saints as they then would all enter heaven after the resurrection of Jesus. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the scope of salvation even includes criminals. If you take nothing else away from what I just said, the scope of salvation includes criminals who were deserving of crucifixion. I like the way that Jesus explains it in Matthew chapter 9. It's verse 13 where he declares, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Think about that for a moment. The Lord Jesus didn't come to call those who are righteous. Who are those who are righteous? I've never met them. But uh, I've met a lot of self-righteous people. But those are sinners also. The Lord didn't come to call the righteous. You see, those who are righteous don't need a savior. Those who are righteous don't need a savior. And the reason why is because those who are righteous always do what's right. That's what righteousness is. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. And that's good news for us because I know we're all sinners. I can just look at you from here and see you're you're a bunch of sinners. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all come short of God's righteous standard. Therefore, we need a savior. We need a savior who can save us from the punishment that we deserve. Thankfully, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance so that sinners might be saved. I like the way that Jesus put it in Luke chapter 19. It's verse 10 where he declares, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek and save that which is lost. In other words, the scope of salvation includes every sinner that has wandered from the path of righteousness. And this includes those who who have struggled with sins that we might consider to be, you know, lesser transgressions. And this includes those, you know, whose sinful struggles we might consider to be greater violations of the law. And so whether you've just struggled with, you know, little bitty, you know, you've only told white lies. Well, you need a, you need a savior. And if you've committed the worst sins on the, uh, on the planet, you also need a savior. And thankfully for us, the Lord Jesus came to save sinners of every stripe. And this includes the most hardened, callous criminals who might be sitting on death row even today. You know, the Lord came to save that person. To prove my point, I want to consider the way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to the 6th chapter of 1 Corinthians. You see, it's here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where we find Paul. He's presenting us with a list of sins which are sure to keep an unbeliever from inheriting the kingdom of God. That's right. There will be some who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul is letting us know, uh, you know, who's on this list. 
And yet at the same time, he's also helping his audience to understand that those who are guilty of these transgressions that will keep people from inheriting the kingdom of God, well, they can also be cleansed from the stain of their sin so that they can be saved. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 9, here Paul asks, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And here in these verses, we find Paul, he's comforting the hearts of the Christians there in Corinth. And he does this by helping them to understand that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ have been cleansed from the stain of their sin. And regardless of whether our sins were carnal or criminal in nature, those who will simply repent and receive by faith the grace of God, well, we've been washed. That's right. Those who receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ have been washed from the stain of our sin. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses the stain of our sin. And not only that, but Paul tells us that we are sanctified by our Savior who then sets us apart from our sins. Do you realize that when you trust in Jesus Christ, he casts all of your sins as far as the east is from the west? How far is that? I don't know. We're not done measuring. But as far as the east is from the west, that's as far as the Lord has separated us from our sins. Not only that, but those who trust in Jesus Christ have also been judicially justified. As a matter of fact, let's take another look there at verse 11. Here Paul declares, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Now that word justified was translated from a Greek word which was used of the judge who then acquits the accused of all charges, thereby declaring their innocence. When the judge bangs the gavel and declares the innocence of the accused, they are justified. I like it in the sense of it's just as if I'd never sinned. Now listen, we're all guilty. We're all sinners deserving of the condemnation of God. For the sins that we've committed, we deserve to be punished. And yet Jesus came and received that punishment that we deserve. He took the the punishment that we deserve so that he could remain just while also justifying those who trust in him. And this justification provided by Jesus is available to every single sinner, including the most callous criminal sitting on death row today. But that being the case, we would do well to remember the parable that Jesus presented in Luke chapter 18. It's there where he talks about two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting this parable about these two men. One, a self-righteous Pharisee. The other, a tax collector who had come to realize that he was a sinner. He was guilty before God. The first person, oh, just the most spiritual person you'd ever meet. I mean, just, just about perfect in his eyes. But the tax collector who realized he was a sinner just couldn't even lift his head up to, to look up to heaven. But rather came with a humble, repentant heart before the Lord. Was the tax collector guilty of engaging in extortion? He was a tax collector, right? Yeah, he was guilty of engaging in extortion, and, and yet he was the one who ended up being justified in the eyes of God. And the reason why? Well, it's because the Lord is ready to justify every sinner who will simply humble themselves and receive by faith the free gift of grace. With this in mind, it's important to understand that the scope of salvation, it includes sinners of every stripe. The Lord desires all to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth so that they might be saved. And as we begin to wrap up this study, it's my hope that we'll all begin to realize that the scope of salvation includes people that we would maybe consider to be irredeemable. And it's sad to say that there are times when we as Christians can be like that Pharisee, looking at other people in the world thinking, glad I'm not like that sinner over there. Glad I'm not as bad as those people, you know, those unsavables. I'm glad that we're deserving of salvation because we're so awesome. Amen? No amens? Listen, if, if, if salvation comes down to who is deserving, none of us get saved. Because none of us are deserving of the Lord's forgiveness. His forgiveness isn't based on whether we deserve it or not. It's based on how gracious he is. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the scope of salvation not only includes unrighteous rulers and seditious soldiers and callous criminals, but the scope of our Savior's salvation also includes us. Undeserving sinners who might not be as bad as the others and yet still deserving of God's righteous wrath. Thankfully, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Therefore, the scope of his salvation includes all of us. And with that being the case, we would do well to share this good news. You know, if you've already received the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, then we should be excited to share this good news with the unbelievers who haven't yet placed their faith in Jesus. 
Let's go out and share this good news that the scope of salvation includes sinners of every stripe so that the unbelievers in our sphere of influence might trust in Jesus Christ and believe. Let's help them to realize that whosoever will believe in Jesus will be saved regardless of how bad we were. Whosoever will believe in Jesus will receive his salvation because this is our Savior's scope of salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so 